scarp, so we might uh, start even if we are still missing for one of our guests that is uh, reaching us uh, soon. My name is uh, Simone Tagliapietra, I am a research fellow on energy and climate here at Bruegel, and it's a pleasure to welcome all of you, so numerous, to this event devoted to understand a little bit more what will be the outlook for the US energy and climate policy under President Trump. Of course, as you all know, during the electoral campaign, uh, Donald Trump illustrated uh, quite uh, clearly its uh, climate uh, skeptics' uh, views. He called for the withdrawal of the US from uh, the Paris Agreement. He reiterated several times his willingness to create jobs out of a traditional source of energy as oil, gas, but also, as he said, uh, beautiful, clean coal. And I'm sure that all of us are familiar of how beautiful coal can be. So uh, let's, say, uh, let's see whether these promises can actually be maintained. And in order to uh, explore these uh, uncharted uh, waters, we have uh, the luck to have uh, four very distinguished uh, panelists uh, with us today. On my on the my right hand side, uh, we have Connie Hedegaard, the chair of the KR Foundation, but in Brussels, of course, well known as a former commissioner for uh, climate action. We have Tim. Uh, Bursma, Senior Fellow at the Columbia University Global Center on Energy in New York, and Christine Berzina, Transatlantic Fellow at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Then I will introduce you uh, also the uh, Chinese colleague that is coming from the, China's, from the Chinese mission to the European Union. So without much further ado, I would immediately turn to you, Tim, because uh, since you just arrived from New York, uh, I would be very curious if you can share with us some of your insights about what's currently going on under the energy and climate perspective in the US. So the floor is yours. Okay, thank you. Thanks a lot um, for having me. Um, it's a great pleasure to, to be here. Uh, I hope you can hear, my, hear me well. I think it's a bit of an echo, but we, well, we should be okay. Um, Thank you all for coming. I have a couple of slides that help me structure uh, what uh, the questions uh, and, and maybe some tentative answers that at this point uh, is uh, about the, uh, the best we can probably do. Um, uh, any government transition, I think, comes with uncertainties. Um, this one's no different uh, in that respect, but the uncertainties are probably uh, a little larger than they uh, preferably would be and arguably should be. Um, so. Um, let me see. Uh, I'll. Uh, no, I need to point here. You said there. Maybe not. Mm. There. there we go. So maybe first, as a as a broad observation, and some of these um, uh, quotes uh, Simona shared already, and you'll you'll have seen those either on Twitter or or on uh, CNN flashes and so on and so forth. If I were to characterize. Um, the, the previous administration and how it approached energy and climate and do that with the current administration, then um, in one arguably little long sentence, that would probably be something like the Obama administration 
had a pro-growth, a pro-trade energy agenda um, uh, with increasingly stringent environmental regulations. And that, uh, you know, I think there's quite a lot of evidence to support that notion, and I think that roughly summarizes his approach to energy and climate. Um, what uh, the current president, President Trump, has proposed is uh, a deregulation of domestic energy production, um, and uh, he has questioned certain aspects, at least, of international trade and whether they are, in fact, uh, whether they are, in fact, beneficial to, to Americans. Um, and I think the key question to grapple with in the coming months and years is to what extent President Trump is uh, or will be able to, to implement that agenda. Uh, but obviously, that marks that it is a fundamental shift uh, uh, to that regard. So I, there we go. Here are a couple of key energy and climate policy issues uh, that we're watching carefully and, uh, and are moderately concerned about, uh, too gravely concerned about, frankly. Um, uh, the, and I won't talk about all of these in great detail, but I'll, 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 I'll say a few words about a couple. Uh, and then afterwards, there are a few more slides in which I'll try to offer some nuances to the notion that all of this can just be wiped off the table, which, as I'm sure you all know, is not how policy, fortunately, in, in mature democracies, not how policymaking works. Um, and, and so that'll give you a bit of context and a bit of nuance and hopefully also some, um, uh, some, some positive notes next to what, you know, on aggregate, I think, is a, is a, is a bit of a gloomy outlook, uh, whether we like it or not. So the, the, the first um, uh, and obviously most uh, often debated uh, uh, plan that the uh, previous administration had put forth, its flagship program was the Clean Power Plan, which essentially sets emissions performance standards on existing power fleet. Um, it gave a lot of leeway to states to fill that in, but it just gave uh, sort of a broad framework within which uh, states had to... Uh, uh, had to operate and make uh, and guide investment decisions going forward. That was a very controversial plan under the Obama administration, a fairly broad coalition of about 25 states formed that was legally challenging um, that plan uh, because they thought it was uh, federal overreach. Um, there's an, an equal, roughly equal, uh, large, equally large group of states that was actually in full support of those rules and, and were, were and are uh, implementing them as we, uh, as we speak. But so a divisive piece of legislation that uh, the Trump administration has said early on uh, and some of his associates, uh, we want to get rid of this. Um, something else needs to come in return, but I think that rolling back the Clean Power Plan as we know it today and as it's still pending in court um, is likely to happen. Um, the other uh, big and the big international piece, uh, of course, the Paris Agreement, um, um, uh, which, uh, you know, as Simone has said, uh, the, the president has repeatedly said or tweeted about we need to get rid of this, um, left a lot of uh, uh, Chinese folks and others confused, uh, and we'll hear more about that later, not in the least because um, the U.S. spent the better half of the last two decades convincing the Chinese that this was a problem, and now that they're acting upon it, uh, are telling them not only that it's a hoax, but also that they invented it. Uh, so that is a confusing message, obviously. Um, uh, and so um, there are various scenarios. There are those factions in the U.S. government that say not only do we not need to act upon the Paris Agreement, we actually need to get out of it, uh, or we need to get out of uh, the underlying uh, framework, the UNFCCC. Um, none of that is decided. All of that is on the table. There are more nuanced views, fortunately. Um, the Secretary of State, former CEO of ExxonMobil, has signaled that he'd rather uh, keep a seat at the table to sort of monitor what's going on uh, and not do too much about it than maybe. Um, uh, allegedly, uh, the president's daughter and her, uh, her husband are also not really in favor and have also signaled that it's maybe better to not completely withdraw from the process, but rather leave it as is. Uh, but it looks as if um, if the U.S. were to 
stay in the process, uh, but not maybe act upon it too much or not do too much in the coming years, um, that would probably be uh, a manageable outcome and at this point maybe even a positive outlook. Um, but it could, be, it could be worse. It's too early to tell which, which sort of narrative or preference will prevail. Um, uh, federal support mechanisms for um, solar and wind, we'll talk a little bit more about those in a bit, uh, but some have called uh, for the removal of those, um, which is less likely to happen. Of course, saving the coal industry, a challenging, uh, a challenging endeavor uh, that, in my view, is very unlikely to happen. And so there are a number of other rules that are up for debate, and some of those we'll get rid of, uh, and others maybe not, maybe less so. Uh, so this I like this uh, slide, the upper end of it, for two reasons. It illustrates really well. Uh, this is a, a, a modeling work that the Energy Information Administration did, uh, and which basically shows um, on the left-hand side uh, the fuel mix in the U.S. and how it will develop without the clean power plan, and on the right-hand side with. Um, and I think the so there's two key messages on this. Oh, what did I just do? There we go. I'm not sure it was me. Um, two key messages. Uh, one is that as you can see. Uh, the Clean Power Plan merely reinforced existing trends that were already happening in the market, right? So um, we see a growing share of natural gas, a declining share of coal, and a growing share of renewables um, in both scenarios. Uh, it's just that without the Clean Power Plan, the, the phase-out of coal is going a lot slower, as you can tell from this graph. Um, so as a, to give you a bit of comfort, even getting rid of the Clean Power Plan and putting something very mediocre in place, those, those trends in this, in this forecast do not seem to be disrupted. Uh, they seem to be merely, merely slowed down, uh, which is not insignificant, and I don't mean to say that, uh, but it is also not as disruptive as, as you may uh, intuitively think. The other thing to keep in mind is that we see these changes only happening after 2020. So the Clean Power Plan and any other significant pieces uh, of legislation that um, we're going to be put in place. We're only going to show effect in the next decade, decade and onward, uh, largely because it takes time for those policies to take effect. A lot of investment decisions have been made, and so in the in the short and even medium term, uh, you know, maybe not that disruptive, um, but obviously creating a lot of uncertainty if you take away key incentives at this point in time. Um, so the coal question. Um, there are a lot of angles to this. Um, this graph we could actually take back all the way to the 1920s, uh, and it would show that uh, from then onward uh, there was structural pressure on uh, employment in the coal sector. Um, that has there are multiple processes at play. Uh, automation of mining uh, of mining activity is is an important factor. Um, domestic consumption, uh, to, sorry, domestic competition between Appalachian coal on the east side of the country and uh, and coal that can be mined from open pit mines uh, in the uh, uh, the River Power Basin, um, all that plays a role. Um, and maybe the largest uh, competitor, the largest enemy of of coal in recent years, uh, very competitive natural gas, predominantly because of the shale gas phenomenon. Um, so. Uh, those trends likely going to continue, um, and despite the narrative that we've heard that the government has killed coal and there's a war on coal and so on and so forth, if there's one, uh, it is fought predominantly by natural gas. Uh, and that is uh, a process that uh, I think is unlikely to be stopped uh, unless you take, take very drastic measures. Um, so federal uh, support mechanisms for, for wind and solar, I, I like this slide because it uh, you may intuitively think, and it may be tempting to say, oh, we need to get rid of all support for, uh, for solar and wind. Um, well, actually, if you look at, uh, it, would be, it would be helpful to look at where those benefits go. Uh, and as this slide shows, on the left-hand side, uh, installed wind capacity onshore um, in, uh, in the top five uh, uh, states where most capacity is installed, four of those are Republican states. 
Uh, top three of states with installed solar capacity, arguably with California leading you know, by a big margin, but still of the top three, two states Republican. And so that doesn't mean that it's inconceivable uh, that some of those incentives will be, uh, will be challenged. Uh, they could become part of a major tax overhaul, for instance, that could happen. But, but if that were to happen, then at a minimum, you would expect angry calls from the state level and governors from those states. Uh, because these are viable industries. Uh, I think in the solar industry, it's at this point in the US over 350,000 jobs. In wind, it's over 100,000. And so those are serious, serious economic interests. And so I don't think that will be taken off the table lightly. Um, furthermore, and finally, um, uh, it is important to keep in mind that federal policy is only one, uh, one slide of, the, uh, of, of a broad palette of incentives that is in place, fortunately. Uh, at the state level, uh, energy, in particular climate policy, has been pursued for a long time. Uh, and I mentioned earlier that there is a wide, uh, a wide uh, variety of ambition levels in the country. Um, this slide shows you um, state renewable portfolio standards uh, that various states have in place. As you can see, it's a lot of them. It is, uh, it is not just Democratic states. There are a lot of Republican states that pursue this too, as I explained. Um, and so I think that a lot of these uh, policies are likely going to be in place uh, just because they uh, provide jobs, because they uh, provide economic activity and support that. Uh, and I don't think that because at the federal level there seems to be a, uh, well, there is a change of mood and likely a fairly disruptive change of, uh, of policymaking that at the state level necessarily that will translate into less ambitious policy as well. So that is to, to say that if I, you know, if I were to sum that up, um, would basically say that yes, at the federal level, it looks like, uh, well, this is this is arguably going to be a, a disruptive moment. Uh, I think this. I don't want to give you any false hope as to uh, things that this ambition may or may not uh, uh, may save at the end of the day. I think there's uh, a real mood change, and I think that's going to translate into uh, disruption of some of the environmental uh, and climate policies that we've seen over the last eight years. Um, there are some glimpses of hope here and there. You can find those at the state level uh, and in industry initiatives that are underway and that are increasingly economic. Um, and those are, even though they're, that's not a very rosy outlook, that's at this point, I think, the best we can do. So I'll stop there. I think to say thank you very much for this very comprehensive presentation. Particularly, thank you for focusing on these uh, clear difference between the federal state uh, level uh, policy. Mm -hmm and uh, the, uh, let's say, state's uh, level, because uh, indeed uh, this can uh, function as a, as a system to contain the, the, the willingness of uh, the, the administration itself to pursue a certain anti-climate change mitigation uh, policy. But uh, with uh, this specific regard, I would now like to turn to Connie because uh, uh, during uh, your mandate as a European Commissioner for Climate Action, you put a lot of effort in bringing together developed and developing countries in the roadmap towards uh, Paris. So given your direct experience with the negotiation and with the structure of the Paris Agreement itself, I would like to ask you the question that basically I think all of us have here in mind which is, will the Paris Agreement survive the Trump administration? <laughs> will we all survive the Trump administration? Uh, thank you very much, Simone, and thank you very much for the invitation. I think the very brief answer is yes, the Paris Agreement will, in my mind, without doubt, survive. 
even if the Trump administration were to say tomorrow that now we are withdrawing. That's a very formalistic point of view, but formalistically speaking, yes, that would, that would survive. And why is that? Well, four-sided people, although everybody claimed that Trump would never be elected American president, somehow four-sided people managed to get into the Paris Agreement this clause saying that from you announce as a country that you want to withdraw from Paris, it takes four years until you can actually withdraw. So if not for other reasons, formally, yes, things will continue, Paris will continue. But now you're referring to my past, so I also know from my past that maybe this formal thing is the least interesting part of such an agreement. Um, I mean, no doubt that had we had a Trump administration five years back, it would have been much more serious. Before all the underlying currents that Tim was just describing, before we actually got a framework, before we got India and China to move, can anybody here see how India and China would have moved away from the old north-south paradigm had it not been for the Obama administration engaging in this? So it would have been so more uh, serious five years back and what we have seen with renewables, the cost curve, the business cases, all this, that means that it's not that easy to turn the whole thing around. But having said that then, the issue of course is will the spirit survive? Will we see implementation? Will the world have a real chance of staying below the two degrees? And I think we should not fool ourselves. Uh, I mean, it means a lot what comes out of the White House. It means a lot what is said by the President of the United States. One should not underestimate that. And also one should not underestimate the fragility of this whole process. I think some of us, and I see many of the in, in this room, who have been working on this from different perspectives, but we have spent years to try and sort of disguise the fact how fragile this process was over the years. So it's not something that could never sort of be reverted. Um, I think it, the likelihood it will happen is very small, but we should not sort of uh, be too confident. I must say, when I say, see this White House paper on America First, the energy paper, I think it's extremely sad to see that climate change is not mentioned once. Clean air, clean water, that's good. It comes as the very last paragraph. Climate change is not mentioned at all. And why is that sad? Um, I think it's sad and I think it's, it's disturbing because I have seen firsthand what is the difference between a United States and an administration in the United States which engages and one who doesn't. I mean, to be frank, the Bush administration did not engage. Sometimes they even came close to obstructing things, maybe not directly, but through somebody else. Also, frankly speaking, in the first mandate, this was not a priority of the Obama administration. Not really, they did not obstruct, obstruct but they were not keenly pursuing this agenda. So we have seen the difference between when they uh, sort of go in and, and, and when they don't. But I must also say I'm puzzled that climate change is not mentioned because this whole energy paper 
as short as it is. But it's focusing very much on security, terrorism, being energy independent. All very valid priorities, obviously. But I think it's puzzling that Pentagon's really big fear in the 21st century, one of their biggest security threats as they see them in the 21st century will be climate change. So it's really disturbing that that is not being reflected in such an, an, an energy paper. Um, this um, very simplistic, very myopic analysis that lies behind this energy paper, that is disturbing. And I think it's not the least disturbing for us in Europe, who would already now see the implications of, for instance, also climate refugees. Not just climate refugees, but we already now see climate change as a threat multiplier. And I really think that for the leader of the, the free world not to see that perspective, that is really, uh, that's really disturbing. How serious will the Trump administration's sort of what they do or what they don't, how serious will that be? I would just, in my short intervention here, mention four things that I see can sort of uh, define whether that would make a big change uh, or not. For instance, how will China uh, react to a Trump administration not sort of caring about climate change? We will hear more about that, obviously. I must say that it has been encouraging both uh, at Davos to, um, to, to hear Xi Jinping really give priority to, to climate, actually making the speech that one would have hoped that one of the European leaders or an American president would have, have made. Um, but I also think that what we just saw uh, from Li Keqiang here at the opening of the People's Congress was also encouraging. My take is that China, for its own self-interest and for many really good reasons, will continue to pursue this climate agenda, which, of course, emphasizes to me how disturbing it is that the United States is not doing this because there will be a geostrategic space opening that, as far as I can see, China could rather easily take also in uh, via, via a lot of developing countries when the Americans leave it this uh, empty. Uh, but I think China will do this for their own interests, for social stability in China, and for geostrategic reasons. Plus, they are ready to take some of these growing markets with their technologies. The um, second question is then, how will American business react to this? If they can see that to be serious about the low carbon transition, that is what really defines competitiveness in the 21st century. What would then be the response to Trump's plans, if he have, uh, has any, uh, from the, the, the US business? I mean, how to make America great again by prioritizing reopening old coal mines who have been closed because they were not profitable? It's really, really hard to see. And I think what we will see in the next decade or so is really also a technological race here. Who really gets to these breakthrough technologies first? And there I would agree with Tim that there is always some, it takes some years before you can see if suddenly very new priorities get in. But I think it means a lot what kind of signals will the American business community send to the Trump administration. And third point, the investors. 
in the same line, I mean, we have seen a lot of more attention to the risk of ignoring climate change in the investor community. We also saw a number of the very big American banks actually really starting to worry about stranded assets, to change their investment portfolios, things like that. In my view, this is one of the areas where it really means something, what is being said from the top. What is being signaled from the top? What kind of certainty or uncertainty is signaled from, from the top? But here I think investors, they really have to, to choose among short-term gains and the longer-term risks. And that brings me sort of uh, to the, the, the fourth thing. I think that many things will continue in the US. As Tim was pointing to, the states are doing a lot. The big cities are doing a lot. But just to put it in this very short form, don't underestimate what it means also for the actions in states and cities, what is being done at, this, at the national level. It, it means something. So, so they cannot, I mean, it will be a, a slower transition without the national focus than with the national focus. And my last point, and maybe most important in, in, in this group then, that is how will Europe then act in light of a Trump administration? Um, I really think that there we, we uh, need to see Europe take its own old role and its traditional role. As I said, it has been more the rule than the exception that we have had sort of a and, and foot-dragging American administration. And there, Europe's role has been to be the front-runner in the international talks, yes, but also in showing by our own example how we can have economic growth and yet still uh, move towards a low-carbon economy. So I think Europe has to come back to its old role as whip or front-runner, now with China as a key player and something that, that's a new, potential, interesting Alliance may be a too big word, but I think with what we uh, had some years back established between Europe and the progressive developing countries, there is an alliance there to build on, and that could indirectly then also put the pressure on, on a Trump administration. And then, just very finally on Europe, it's about the geostrategic space that is empty, that Europe could also sort of get some soft power now by stepping in there even more visibly. And I think it's about our own transition uh, with creating a new low carbon economy uh, and see it as a tool to reviving the European economy. And we need it so badly and contrary to the Americans who are independent on other uh, energy sources, that is not the situation in Europe, why we have such a huge self-interest actually in, uh, in going through this green transition. Do we dare to do it? Will we do it? Can we do it? I think the energy union is one of the steps that could be taken here. I think the whole infrastructure investment program is another. I think to continue on our renewables sort of expansion is, is a, a third area where Europe can demonstrate to our citizens and to our more and more skeptical citizens that the European way of growing is a different model from the American way of growing. So without making it too simple, but just ending up, I would say I'm absolutely sure that Trump's strategy, as we have heard of it up till now, 
that will not, in the longer run, contribute to making America great again. But I think it has a potential, actually, of making Europe uh, more great again in the eyes of its citizens. But the prerequisite is that European business and European governments are not getting too scared if Trump is now cutting back on energy costs in a very short-term sort of move, which, of course, in the very short term, would challenge European competitiveness. But I would really hope that we could see just a bit longer than that, and by that also creating a narrative that I think that really many Europeans could see an added value in for EU. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, and I have to say that I feel quite uh, reassured by these uh, potentially positive uh, spillover on the European side to, to react and construct a, a different pathway. Uh, I wonder whether the European leaders are currently able to seize this opportunity, but I guess that that's another kind of debate. But uh, uh, in uh, your talk, you mentioned several times uh, China, of course, because China is positioning itself as uh, a global uh, leader after having emerged as uh, a global uh, economic power. And uh, I would then uh, naturally turn to Zheng to, to ask uh, whether China is willing and, I would say, able at this moment in time to take the leadership of uh, the global fight against climate change. The floor is yours. Okay, uh, thank you. Uh, sorry for being a little bit late. Uh, actually, I would not say whether China was going to be a leader or not, but I would, I would rather say China want to be a champion together with every partner, with every country, certainly absolutely including EU. And uh, let me first start with that tackling uh, climate change is a kind of uh, inherent, just as Madame Hedgard said, is a kind of doing, just, just now you mentioned, doing this is for our own interest. And we say it's a, it's a kind of inherent demand for our own transition of economy. And also, it's very important for our environment. So we would say that in uh, 2015, that China have submitted the INDC to the UNCCC, and uh, in which we set out our ambitious, ambitious goal. And I'm coming here to say that this INDC will absolutely continue, uh, continued, be continued to be fulfilled. And, and at that time, when I was, uh, when China submit, sub, uh, submitting the uh, INDC, I was a director for the Climate Change Office in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and I know this goal is not easy. And uh, in coming years, we will making, make painstaking efforts to fulfill it. And just allow me to give you some figures as what we have done last year. Last year, for example, China, uh, China reduced our, uh, our steel capacity uh, almost, I think it's uh, 45 billion tons. And we also withdraw the coal capacity over 200, uh, 250 million tons. Maybe somebody can tell me the exact number of the steel uh, production uh, uh, of uh, Germany last year. Uh, I'm not sure about the exact 
number is about 400 million, but the, the, what we reduced last, last year is almost 450. Uh, sorry, uh, 40, 45 million. It's almost the capacity of, of, of Germany, whole year. But at the same time, please just make, be aware, when we are reducing this overcapacity of coal, coal, uh, coal and steel, it means also that we will have a lot of workers to find new jobs. And the number I got, the figure I got was almost, let me see, um, 40, uh, 800, 800,000 of workers, of Chinese workers, we're going to have to find new jobs. So it's not an easy job for us. At the same time, China will continue to push forward the establishment of uh, carbon markets. And we have already have seven pilot markets. But our, our aim is to uh, further our legal uh, and market uh, mechanism construction and finally have a kind of national-wide uh, carbon markets. So, uh, as Madame uh, Hedgard may be aware of that, that uh, China and EU have very good cooperation in this field and we got a lot of very helpful uh, experiences from our EU friends. And China is also quite ex uh, active in green finance and according to some statistics that the green bond issued by Chinese issuers last year has reached nearly uh, 36 billion US dollars, which uh, account about 39% of the global total, which I believe to be the number one in the world. So let's um, just give you some figures. Second is that um, uh, I would in, uh, emphasize also that um, uh, Developing the uh, renewa renewable energy is also in the interest of uh, every uh, country. Just as I mentioned, that maybe it's not, um, I'm not sure that whether we will regard ourselves as uh, leaders or not to be leaders, but let's say we could be champion. Everybody can be champion, no matter what you are developed countries or you are just a small LDCs, least developed countries. But every time we are, when you are doing at your utmost, you are the champion. Uh, um, I have the honor to be involved uh, in the negotiation of Paris Agreement. And um, my personal uh, feeling, maybe Madame uh, Hedgard, that uh, in 2018 9 when you are chairing the, you are chairing the uh, COP, 17 in Copenhagen, maybe you could be aware that there is a kind of difference between what we have in Copenhagen and what we have in COP in Paris. And my personal understanding of the main essence or most impressed me deepest is that the Paris Agreement is a kind of fruit of cooperation, really cooperation and good faith. It's not a kind of simple bargaining. I think that's maybe the major difference between what we have achieved in Paris and what we have achieved in Copenhagen. And um, um, the third point I also want to mention is that uh, China and the EU is also 
uh, undergoing very good cooperation. And um, not only in the field of carbon markets, we also have other good corporations, uh, such as in mitigation, in adaptation, and uh, you have quite some mature uh, techniques, technologies, and uh, we are rather welcome that uh, those technologies could be used in China as, as well as other countries. And China are also open that we could, together with EU, do some other uh, helps to other developing countries, and uh, we will continue to work together with our colleagues with EU. And the last point is that I also want to mention that China, although we are, we are going to do our utmost efforts, but China is still a developing country. And uh, we, are, we were and will continue to be one of the members of the biggest de developing country in multilateral uh, area, that's Group 77 plus China. And in China, we still have more than uh, 600 million uh, people in poverty. So uh, when we are doing our great efforts of tackling climate change, we also bear in mind that we are still a developing country and we will not abandon the principles shared together by all those developing countries, such as CBDR, RC, equity, principle of equity, and all those things. And we are also paying equal importance to mitigation and adaptation and the transfer of, transfer of technology and capacity building. So that's uh, four points I just want to mention. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed, and I guess that we will have the opportunity to come back to this EU-China possible alliance uh, during the uh, debate that will uh, follow the panel. But uh, uh, to close uh, uh, the panel itself, I would like to turn to Christine, because uh, we widely uh, discussed the climate side of uh, our topic here today. But let's not neglect also the uh, energy market uh, implications of uh, the new administration. So my question would be for you, how do you see uh, the implications of the new potential policy of Trump for global energy markets and in particular for oil and gas markets? Thank you very much. Uh, it's great to be here. Energy. Uh, is a big part of the Trump administration right now. And I think that Tim started this off, but I think as compared to previous administrations, it's, it's noteworthy how big a role energy played in the campaign. Uh, unusual conversations, different from what we were expecting perhaps. Um, but from the very beginning also of the administration itself, starting from the inauguration through the first few days, you saw actions uh, on energy policy that were very distinct from what the Obama administration had put into place from putting on a, the America First Energy Policy, you know, rather than a climate page on the White House website on Inauguration Day itself. Um, and it does have one, it, the word climate does appear in the policy, but uh, saying, talking about the Climate Action Plan as uh, the, uh, you know, is a burden uh, on the country rather than something to be uh, worked towards. Um, through to some of the executive orders that took place within, within a few days of, uh, of coming into office. So I'm going to talk a little bit about what he had, President Trump has, has promised to do on energy, uh, what he has already done, and uh, what that really means uh, for, for the country and for the, for the global uh, energy system as such. 
So more fossil fuels production, but I think uh, this extends to gas and to, uh, and to coal, uh, gas oil, but also to coal. Uh, so we'll talk about coal more, but this is definitely a big piece uh, of what President Trump is intending. Less regulation overall. This is not, tr not only true for energy, but it's true for the government as such for any sector. Uh, there is a drive to cut regulations down. Um, so this will particularly mean reducing water protection. So even though there's a discussion on air and water, uh, the concrete steps indicate that uh, reducing water protection is at the top of the agenda, really, at the EPA right now. Uh, more energy infrastructure, so pro probably more investment in fossil fuels uh, related in ports, in pipelines, in a lot of the big pieces that will provide construction jobs that will use, hopefully, American steel, although when you look at Keystone, that probably won't be the case. Um, so things that will take American products, spur American manufacturing, and then lead to bigger American uh, trade in the world, which perhaps is counter to some of the rhetoric that President Trump started with. Uh, but the, the money seems to be flowing and the rhetoric flows towards building bigger export uh, infrastructure. Uh, with the goal also of cheaper energy prices for consumers in the US. So there's a lot, the sense of more is, is really big here. So more energy, more infrastructure, more production um, uh, of all sorts of things. And I agree with Tim that it doesn't mean less renewables necessarily, um, which uh, given that we are five years after you know, where we could have been, uh, the price indications are going to be really important to understand where the US is uh, in four to eight years. Um, because if, uh, the, if renewables are competitive uh, in their own right, if gas prices remain low in the states, uh, then you can say what you want about coal, uh, but you, know, you might have better options on the table. So um, one big thing that we will see in the US is an increase potentially in, uh, in federal lands. So there's always a debate in the US, uh, are federal lands a value in and of themselves for water, for wildlife, for uh, all sorts of things, or is it an untapped resource for, uh, for extracting uh, various fossil fuels? Thus far, we haven't seen a great deal of action here. That may very well change because we do see this in this very short uh, statement from President Trump uh, in the, you know, on, on inauguration day on the, on the White House website. Uh, we also see um, in their actions a, tur a turning back uh, on the waters of the US rule. So we're talking about water protection. So uh, what's important to note, so you have these uh, six paragraphs approximately uh, on the White House website on what will be done on energy. Two things are considered a problem uh, in this website. Climate is one, water is the other. And on February 28th, the water issue was officially addressed in an executive order to revise uh, the water's rule. So I don't know what that means for timing for climate, but of these two things that uh, we need to be concerned about uh, if you're in the White House, uh, climate is already on the, uh, the water is on the chopping block. Uh, we'll see when climate comes up next. If, if you do have questions about this, um, the question is whether tributaries and wetlands and ponds uh, are subject to strict environmental regulation or is it only big waterways, rivers, and such. So it's really a matter of interpretation uh, for these laws. It's not you know slashing everything that came before, uh, but the devil is in the details in a lot of these things, and uh, we'll see perhaps how that plays out in, in, in climate as well. So approving pipelines, uh, big action. So four days after inauguration, uh, President Trump gave a green light uh, for Keystone XL. 
uh, and, for, um, and, and, and for the Dakota Access Pipeline. These have both incredibly controversial projects. Uh, President Obama turned away from the Keystone Project, uh, and, uh, the, and President Trump is bringing it back to life. What this will do is will, it's going to bring uh, Canadian crude oil into the U.S., across the U.S., uh, and down to Gulf Coast refineries. So this is going to help the refining industry, um, the oil industry in the U.S., Climate uh, advocates are concerned about this because of the, uh, of, of the emissions related to a lot of the Canadian uh, oil production. So we have the, the tar sands, oil sands question right there. Um, and we also have a, a, an act of reducing regulations right now for the coal industry uh, to reduce a, um, and to remove a protection rule that uh, would reverse uh, that would have prevented dumping of coal debris into streams. So again, water is uh, affected already, um, but this is seen as a good positive political push uh, for coal miners across the country. Big implications here for the oil and gas industry in that it's already a global leader. We have seen consistently since the start of the shale gas revolution that the US is the top, oil, uh, top gas producer. Um, newer news uh, is really the, the, the start of uh, U.S. LNG exports uh, through Sabine Pass, uh, the first uh, LNG export terminal last year. Before 2021, uh, the uh, Energy Information Agency expects that another four uh, will come online, which will radically increase uh, the U.S. role for, as an energy provider and a natural gas provider for markets pretty much anywhere you want. It could be in Europe. It could be in the Far East. Um, and if you look at what the volumes are expected to be, uh, by 2020, it is up to um, say about 86 BCM a year. So more than what Germany uses today uh, in natural gas is how much uh, the US will start exporting uh, annually by 2020. So everything in place, and this has nothing to do even with what the Obama, the Trump administration might do. Simply, the, the, the mechanisms are in place uh, to make the US become a major natural gas exporter. Um, the, another big deal, but less for Europe, more for, um, more for the other hemisphere, uh, is that uh, the U.S. is a major natural gas exporter now to Mexico. Uh, when you look at the, uh, the ties for, uh, between the U.S. and Mexico, you have a radical increase uh, in the gas that is going to Mexico. Uh, this is uh, good uh, in terms of gas prices. It provides a more of a market, so the prices are increasing slightly for natural gas. Um, and the question, though, is there's a worry now um, in the states, should relations sour between the U.S. and Mexico uh, for many reasons, such as migration um, and, and uh, trade tariffs, et cetera? If you, don't, if you aren't sending uh, gas anymore to Mexico, what does that do with the gas price in the state? Does it collapse to below $2 uh, per million BTO? And then do you suddenly have a, you know, does production taper off too? Because you know, there is a point at which you can't produce any more gas when it gets too cheap. Um, oil is doing fantastically because of these refining uh, bits. So refineries are up tremendously. This has a lot to do with uh, dynamics, again, in Latin America, the ability of Mexico and other Latin American countries to refine their own crude oil. Um, but uh, if you are in the oil and gas business in the States, it is uh, all, all signs are for, for great things to come. You can export. You can use it domestically. Uh, you can uh, use pipelines. Uh, you, can use, uh, you can use LNG. So it's all, it's all go right there. Um, this might be terrible for coal. We do talk about coal uh, as, you know, what, what is the future for, for U.S. coal? Low gas, natural gas prices um, are the biggest threat to coal in the United States. 
And President Trump might have a challenge here to figure out whether he's going to be supporting the oil and gas industry, whether he's interested uh, in the U.S. role there globally, uh, or if he's going to try to support domestic coal. 92% uh, of American coal uh, goes towards producing electricity in the United States. Uh, in the past year, uh, gas has overtaken coal as the main source of, uh, uh, of electricity as, you know, for power plants. Um, so it's the main feedstock for power plants uh, in the past year. If this continues, this is terrible for American coal. Um, but that depends exclusively on the price of coal, um, uh, sorry, price of gas. And so if gas stays cheap, if it is, uh, if, the, if you reduce barriers to its production, if you uh, shut off flows uh, to Mexico, for example, then again, the gas price uh, will go down and then coal will be pushed out. So President Trump was going to have a challenge here to balance his politics with Mexico, uh, his uh, interest in the oil and gas <coughs> sector, his uh, interest in the coal sector, uh, because it is uh, because price is going to win, and it's very difficult within this within this context to make coal win um, for you know for political reasons or for price reasons. The good sign for coal in the country is the price of metallurgical coal is rising. Uh, but again, that's not the be-all, end-all. The be-all, end-all is the power sector. And the power sector has gas, and the power sector has a tremendous uh, influx of renewables as well. Um, and in terms, then, of uh, U.S. leadership, not just on climate, but on, uh, on technology, on batteries, on renewable investment, so much of this happens outside of Washington. Um, the innovation push is in California, for example. And you do see that Silicon Valley uh, is not fully on board with President Trump on any issue. Uh, and so if you, you could see perhaps even greater leadership from California in opposition to the rest of the United States, partially on principle, um, seeing that there is a loss of leadership on the federal level, and so California can do more to be a country in its own right, as it often tries to be, to push this. And the innovation also coming from a lot of the, the tech sector there is probably going to continue. Um, and this isn't really a matter of for Washington to control. And so uh, you could probably speak more to that, Tim, but it's, uh, there are many encouraging signs there, too, that the U.S., uh, maybe not as a government in and of itself, but uh, you know, what is the representational value of U.S. Uh, business leaders, uh, of, uh, of tech company leaders, in capturing the imagination uh, across the globe and, and promoting some of these renewable technologies and, and really having that spirit of uh, driving innovation and research and, and making sure that we're, we're getting there. So in general, um, it's a go for all American, uh, all American energy sources, uh, all of the fossil fuels, including coal right now, um, and renewables. And it will just matter what the price signals are uh, at the end of the day to see what goes forward. So again, markets will contribute to define the, the uh, way forward. Because we've had the five years to really put things in place, the markets are going to be more important now. And, uh, and, and the green technologies have a much bigger shot than they would have yeah. otherwise. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. And uh, I think that uh, with uh, half an hour to go, it's now the right time uh, to open the debate. And uh, I, you know, as a chair, I would have the tendency to start posing myself uh, several questions to our panelists, but I would try to contain myself to two specific questions. Uh, to Connie because I can really not resist of, uh, of asking you these questions. The first is related to the uh, potential withdrawal of uh, the US from the Paris structure because in your talk you um, rightly 
said that is unlikely a withdrawal from the Paris Agreement simply because the technical times uh, are clear. It will take uh, up to four years to withdraw from the agreement itself, so it's something that is very unlikely to happen. But what about uh, the withdrawal, the potential of a withdrawal from the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change? Because some hardliners within the administration are pushing for that. And uh, in Brussels, we had uh, a week ago the opportunity to listen to uh, the former head of the transition team uh, uh, for the Environment uh, Protection Agency of the US, and he was very clear on that. He said, from my perspective, what the administration should do is to immediately withdraw from the Framework Convention. And that, as we know, would be extremely quick. It would be a matter of uh, up to a year. And uh, legally speaking, it will, of course, be uh, rather feasible for, for the administration if a political decision is made on that. The second question relates to the EU-China alliance that uh, you was uh, portraying. And actually, many of us think that uh, the EU uh, should uh, take the lead of, uh, of uh, the climate change mitigation efforts, but as uh, Zhang said, nobody is sufficient for himself to make it alone, so we need, of course, to take on board China and uh, seize uh, their willingness also to be champions on, uh, on the fight against climate change, but how to structure such a new bilateral alliance? Thanks. Okay, thank you. First, I don't know if the Americans would end up sort of going out of the UNFCCC. I mean, wouldn't that be a whole question of their relationship to all sorts of UN agencies? And of course, that debate is also coming up. But wouldn't one believe that in the end, for instance, in, in the US State Department, that they would opt for a better be around the table than not. I mean, I, I simply have a hard time to see that they would really end up doing that. Whereas I could see the symbolic thing and saying, we are withdrawing from Paris, if, if they didn't believe that that was the right way of, of, of doing a thing. I don't think either that they will end up with, with doing that. So I do not, I mean, in line with what I said before, I just think what they are really doing on the ground in the US and what they are signaling, that is what really matters. Uh, I would not be too concerned about this, uh, this other thing, and I cannot really see it materialize. On this EU-China thing, I think that um, that is actually what the, the European ministers would like to see. That is also what the European Commission, I know, is sort of working at, and, and with the Chinese colleagues, working at how to strengthen links there, how to strengthen sort of uh, the dialogue uh, at, at summits, but also in, I mean, Way back, we have had this major economist forum where the 17 biggest economists were discussing climate issues. That was started actually way back from President Bush, but then Obama really took ownership of that, and that was, in many respects, an important forum. Obviously, no one can see a major economist forum now being the forum because that would not be a priority of the Trump administration. So instead, I think that the Petersburg dialogue uh, that the Germans have sort of hosted 
where Europe has been sort of very much into that, and where China and many others are participating, and a lot of countries are participating. I think that the idea is now maybe to double uh, the frequency with which you meet there. Uh, and I also think, as I mentioned, that this uh, group or informal dialogue between progressive countries, progressive developing countries, and now also with China and India present, that could also be uh, some, something. And if I could add just a, a, a last point, I think that now with the German G20 presidency, it will be interesting, I know that this is being prepared, could G20 be what it, in my view, should have been long time ago, it should have been a, a key area to discuss global challenges like, like this. And I think that there, there will be a real pressure on the Trump administration, because if China would agree to that now, uh, and India would maybe not actively push for it, but be silent there, and then the Europeans got their act together, then it, it would be quite a, a push, and that we would see already this June. I think that the, July. the agenda of the G20 is getting uh, every day be more and more busy because uh, the idea of the Germans was the one of really try to focus the world G20 on uh, Africa and how to tackle at the roots uh, the, the, the problems of migration. But of course, with all these uh, global developments, uh, uh, because here we are really talking now about uh, international governance, the G20 is uh, emerging as a more and more important uh, platform for debate and of course I agree that climate change should be there on the table and have a special attention in order to really uh, understand uh, how these kind of alliances can be uh, can be taken over. So I would now really open the floor for questions and answers so I see already here in the front uh, first two questions if you can just identify yourself that will be great thank you. Uh, Kurt Geisert, Association of uh, European uh, SMEs. I would like uh, to come back to the point you made about California. And I would like to ask the colleague from Columbia University, how do you see uh, this relationship, the relationship between the Trump administration and ambitious single states, uh, environmentally ambitious uh, single states like California? Not so much the question, Senate, there the Republicans have the majority, but the relationship between the Trump administration and ambitious single states. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. It's a, no, it's a good question. It's a great point uh, that Christine made. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, historically, states have had and will continue to have quite a bit of autonomy uh, to pursue policy that they see fit. Um, and California is a good example, which has historically, in certain areas, set a standard above the sort of the federal ambition level that then became leading for, uh, for policy in the period after. Um, uh, whether that's going to happen going forward is hard to say. Uh, that has been uh, an issue of, uh, uh, of contention, obviously. It, it sometimes irritates people in, in Washington, D.C., that folks from liberal, funky California uh, dictate, you know, what the world should look like. Um, um, so, but, I, but, but that autonomy, uh, that relative, relative uh, uh, substantial amount of autonomy will obviously stay in place. Um, which is why I think that, and it's not just California, other ambitious states and they're across the country, um, you know, Colorado, New York, Massachusetts, and many more, will likely be able to continue what they want to do. Um, uh, similarly, obviously, the private sector uh, can make investments as they see fit and will likely continue to do so. So I think you were right to say that 
uh, you know, obviously Silicon Valley and other parts of the country. There's a big push to spur innovation. Uh, the uh, uh, a group um, headed by Bill Gates put a lot of money together to sort of come up with new technology uh, that we don't know yet today, but that hopefully will be able to, you know, make some sort of a contribution going forward. Um, I think that those initiatives will move forward. There were meetings at the beginning of this administration uh, between uh, groups of those investors uh, and the Trump administration. Um, the, well, uh, rather uh, superficial information was first that I think it was a great group of people, if I'm not mistaken, the tweet. Um, later on, it became evident that there were some differences of opinion about, okay, what, what exactly does the federal government do and not do? Um, I, think, I think that the federal position on this issue has not been ironed out in full. Um, there, there are competing views on this. There are a number uh, of people in the entourage of the president who, are, who seem to be uh, much more willing to be disruptive. Um, his uh, chief strategy advisor, I think, is a good example. The, uh, the uh, gentleman who headed the EPA transition team, another. Um, I don't think they, uh, I don't think those people uh, uh, care much about how disruptive they would be. Uh, it's just for a matter of being disruptive that they pursue their ideas. Uh, others more realistic, um, uh, less disruptive, and yeah, let's see who prevails. I mean, it's it's too early to say. I don't I don't know. Can I, Christine, please. I, also, it's. Uh, I mentioned California and Silicon Valley because they capture a lot of the imagination. But what's really important in the States is the fact that it's not only Tesla that is changing the agenda. When you look at things that are really important for the energy transition, uh, such as demand response systems, uh, you have a lot of advocates for them there that are not Tesla, but that are big box stores in Oklahoma, for example, right? These are places, stores that have the option of uh, turning off their refrigerators or turning them the temperature up for a few minutes in order to make sure that you don't turn on an additional power plant for a few minutes when you might need it, right? It's the people who have a vested interest in this in the U.S. are, uh, you know, companies that are based in states that have very strongly supported President Trump. And so the voices that are going to come to him on this issue are not going to be simply a guy in a sweatshirt. It is going to be people who speak his language very much. And I think that is very encouraging for those of us who have worked on the energy transition uh, in Europe and in the U.S. Uh, Georg, I saw that uh, you have a question. Georg Georg Zachmann from Bruegel. Um, I have a question on the um, uh, question of bringing coal back or not. Mm -hmm. You very clearly argued that that will be quite difficult uh, for economic reasons. Um, one item that has been circulating as one of the major policies is the, uh, is the border adjustment tax that is um, one of the key pillars of the, of the Republican uh, Party tax plan. And if you take that into account, I, I heard the number circulating of 26% in uh, that uh, kind of exportable energies might become more expensive. That means gas and oil, while coal not being really exportable uh, uh, to that degree. So in that sense, you would essentially kind of make coal much more competitive with gas. Um, don't you think that that might essentially help coal to, uh, to at least stay in the fuel mix at the, uh, at the current level or not even increase? Do answer it? To Tim? Yeah, I'll be happy to answer. So the, um, 
I mean, the plans for border adjustment tax have been launched but, and are widely debated, but I think fairly poorly understood uh, because it's, and because it's just really complicated to see how exactly this plays out. Interest rates, uh, you know, how other currencies respond, currency value, it's really complicated. And so I'd be hesitant to say all too firm things about how that plays out. It's not, it's not final policy for that reason. I'm not sure uh, Speaker Ryan, who launched the proposal, really understands what it means because um, there's just very few people that do. Um, it's complicated. Um, I, so I think that the very basic idea is you're going to tax imports uh, and, and basically reduce taxes on exports, right? So um, you would have to export a lot of gas and oil in order to have a real upward effect on prices. In fact, studies to that extent have been done when permits for exports for natural gas were being considered. There was obviously a lot of concern what happens when we start exporting 10 and at some point even 20 BCF a day of natural gas, because there was a pile of permits that were pending. Um, and uh, studies basically showed that that had a fairly, fairly, fairly um, uh, a moderate effect on, on domestic gas prices. Um, so, um, so, so I think that I'm, I'm not too worried about this uh, it, to that extent, but I will, I will say that, I mean, what Christine said is right. Um, uh, it is, at the end of the day, all about the interplay of domestic prices, oil, uh, sorry, gas and coal in the power sector in particular, because uh, coal doesn't really play a role of significance in the, in the industrial sector other than some steel production. Um, the, um, and, and so what we've actually seen in forecasts of the Energy Information Administration is that as gas prices have recovered from last year when they were really low, around $2, even a little below at some point uh, per MMBTU, um, but they've come up markedly uh, over $3 now. And we're at a point where, uh, you know, uh, 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 it, is, it is not per definite. So the big, the big bump, if you will, in phasing out coal has pretty much taken place. Uh, would have been reinforced again with, when the Clean Power Plan would have come into effect. Uh, that would have taken another 80, 90 gigawatts of, of coal-fired capacity off the market. So if that doesn't happen, then you buy time for that existing fleet uh, that may live another 10, 20 years. Uh, but I think that's probably the best that the Trump administration can do. We had a lady in the second row. Yes. And then we come Thank to the you. front. Well, thank you. I find this debate highly interesting. My name is Susanne Kuschel from BASF. Uh, I'm speaking on behalf of a global producer who ideally uh, looks for a global level playing field. Recently, uh, I read that uh, some senior Republican figures uh, suggested a CO2 tax in the US. Uh, how likely do you think uh, 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 will that succeed? And I have a question to the Chinese representatives. I also follow uh, the developments in China quite closely. Uh, we are only months away from the rollout of the nationwide ETS, uh, but there are still some uncertainties as to the exact uh, design of the system. And I just, this morning I read that um, maybe you will only kick it off with some sectors covered. Can you say something more about that? Thank you. Okay. Maybe um, just, me, uh, just let me uh, start from the carbon market. Uh, I'm not sure about what the exact name will be about uh, of Chinese nationwide uh, market, uh, carbon market, uh, maybe called ETS or something else. But yes, you're correct that uh, um, maybe there should be some kind of clarification when we are saying that uh, the Chinese uh, carbon, national carbon market uh, will uh, be kicked off uh, in this year. It's not a kind of total comprehensive uh, or uh, set, setting out. Uh, 
but you know that to establish a national wide uh, carbon market is a really, really a very difficult job to do so. And we are also uh, studying very, very carefully, and we make numerous contact with our EU uh, friends that uh, we, we just want to learn something uh, right or something uh, reverse um, lessons uh, from uh, our EU friend that every time uh, when the China uh, China's national carbon market is uh, set up, we hope it's a kind of uh, mature and uh, to experience uh, less uh, setting backs. So therefore, I think my personal understanding is that uh, when we are saying that we are rolling out the uh, national carbon market this year is that first we are going maybe in national level, we are going to set a, set a kind of um, uh, rule for those uh, or stipulations for the market. And then maybe some uh, mechanisms for allocation of quotas in national level, in, national, in, in, in the nation level, in state level. And then we will continue to discuss with those different provinces and we will all, what they could do and uh, in the kind of on, on, tech, on those uh, real technical basis, for example, for which, con uh, for which sector of industry and for what, which kind of uh, factories or coal or refineries or at what kind of standards of code uh, uh, allocation could be made. So it's a really, really tedious work to, to continue. So I'm not, I'm not saying that, uh, I, I agree with you. I don't think that in, 2000, in the year 2017, the national-wide uh, carbon market will just uh, bump into, a, into existence. So I, I think you are correct. Connie, you also wanted to Yeah, comment. I just wanted to address the other point. This group of Republicans led by George Shultz, former uh, Secretary of State, and a number of others. And I, I can hear that some people say, okay, now the Republican Party is moving. But I mean, George Schultz has sent out this statement many years ago and, and done it time and again. And I think that it's no coincidence that it's a group also coming very much from the security establishment who have sort of realized if we want to do this transition in a cost-efficient manner and we need to do this, then we need to get the pricing right. But as I hear it, there is no chance whatsoever in this Congress or in this situation that that is going to, to happen. And that is actually what worries me a bit because I believe very much that we cannot do this transition without the market and without the level playing field and all these things. But what is the business case that will make sort of the right investments happen if you just want extremely cheap energy and basically no standards, no policy, no regulation, no whatever, where would it come from? Uh, and, and how would we avoid that we are making a lot of wrong investments for the short term that would end up making it impossible to stay below the two degrees and to become low carbon societies by 2050? Today we have been, for good reasons, that was the topic for today, discussing the energy side. But I mean, the next big challenges, and we know this in Europe, that is transportation, that is agriculture, that is buildings, that is efficiency, it is resource efficiency. I mean, all these kind of things, as far as I can see so far, 
is totally absent in the American discussion. And that is really what worries me. Plus, I cannot see where will they get the modernization of the energy systems that they so badly need. All the investment plans that we have heard from Trump, I mean, it's trillions, it's fantasillions that has to go into modernizing the whole energy infrastructure. But where will this money come from? So far, nobody has been able to answer that question. That's why you have to pursue a global price. If it's a global price and we pay the same for a ton of CO2 in China and Europe, in the US, of course. Wherever, then it doesn't matter. We agree. But as long as we are just having it here in Europe, uh, it, it represents a disadvantage somewhat. And now in Korea, and now in China, and now elsewhere. <laughs> yeah. We have a question here in the front, right? So. Yeah. Thank you. My name is Sanjeev Kuran, the founder of Change Partnership. This is a fascinating conversation. I've got um, two, two questions. Um, the first one is, is that we should really learn the lessons of what happened with the Trump election and with the nonsense that happened in the UK around Brexit. And that was that as you rapidly transition economies very, very quickly, you have huge economic dislocation, which translates itself into a very serious political problem in the form of Brexit and Trump. Um, so my, my, my question is to our Chinese colleague and to our European representative, um, how do we factor in the social cost of carbon, the social cost of economic transition into any EU-China and EU and anybody else dialogue? I think that's the crucial element to everything we're doing. Uh, going back to the situation in the US, if the US wants to stick its head at a big toilet and effectively dislocate itself from the rest of the world, I think that's a huge opportunity for the rest of the world to effectively start um, uh, effectively taking part in a fire sale for things like NASA, for things like you know catching up on decades of, uh, uh, of expertise overnight by just buying them out. I'd be interested to know how our US colleagues think they're going to be able to keep the, the talent and the expertise that's in America, in NASA, in the EPA, and everywhere else, um, when I would expect Europeans, Chinese, Indians, and everybody else to be offering them very lucrative deals to tempt them away. Thank you. So, Connie and team, and then we have two gentlemen here in the front. So, Connie, if you want to Okay, answer. just to, to uh, your part about social cost, what I basically think we need in Europe, in the United States, everywhere, that is a new way of doing the economic uh, modeling, so to speak, where we factor in the cost of externalities. That is the big problem. And for those of us who believe that we need a well-functioning market, we must admit that there is a market failure when the true cost is not reflected in the pricing. So if you want a well-functioning market, that is where we should go look first to sort of mend that market failure and have true cost uh, being reflected in our economic modeling, in the principles that we sort of uh, put our, make our economic choices from. And that is not just about uh, CO2 pricing, it's also about sort of really systematically in calculating the true cost of any uh, activity, price externalities in, in other words. And I think that's the big reform we need. And that would be the best thing seen from market players and market stakeholders everybody, and that is where we still have a lot of work to do, also in Europe, also in our finance ministries throughout Europe. Tim? Yeah, I think, well, I mean, it's an interesting point, but I think it's too early to tell. Uh, I mean, I think uh, historically the U.S., as you know, has been a magnet for talented people. Um, I don't think that's going to change lightly, uh, and I, it's too early to say whether that will change. It's an interesting, interesting idea, but I 
I wouldn't know if that would actually happen. So we have the gentleman and then the other gentleman. So we have two of them. I'm Gerd Schönmelder from the European Commission Research and Innovation. Um, thank you for sharing your thoughts on uh, what may happen if the U.S. really drops out of uh, its role of being a climate champion. And, and thanks also for speculating a little bit as to who should step into those shoes and who should play that role. Now, I wanted to ask you about another angle to this, to this issue. When you look at the recent Mission Innovation Initiative, then you see that um, there are not just the usual suspects, so to speak, but there are countries that haven't been associated with clean energy innovation at all, uh, and not just Saudi Arabia, uh, the Emirates, uh, but also uh, fairly big countries, fairly sizable countries like Indonesia. Mm -hmm. So my question would be, if we're talking about um, champions for clean energy innovation, uh, would, uh, what are your thoughts on the role of these perhaps second-tier emerging countries, not the real heavy hitters, but just below the, the real heavy hitters? Um, do you see them coming into this picture? Um, is this significant from your point of view? And should anybody champion their role in, in this global endeavor? Be it the European Union, be it China, be it the US, whoever may champion them. Some of you want to answer? Sure. Uh, yeah, no, that's, I, I mean, I think it was very significant that some of those countries were part of that endeavor. Uh, but we can factually observe that the endeavor, which was, you know, sort of spearheaded by DOE, by former Secretary of Energy and his staff, uh, needs a new leader. Um, because DOE is not going to spur that process uh, for the time being. That's, that's, I think, where we are. So I think those efforts were significant and can continue to be significant. Uh, but that, I mean, I don't think DOE is going to continue its mission innovation the way it, the way it did under the previous administration. Another question here. Pierre Lacombe, an Environment Foundation. Uh, I'm addressing to Connie Hedegaard. Uh, I fully sympathize with you when you regret that the EU energy uh, paper is ignoring climate and CO2. And you said that. It was the US. Yes, but also the energy is also not uh, a much better place in, in Europe. So my question is how do you see the actual possibility? of linking again energy and climate. And I thought about two uh, possible things. The first one is to try to reduce gradually the huge subsidies to fossil fuel energies and increase slightly the very low subsidies to renewable, 95 versus 5%. That is the first thing. But on the other hand, to show how this is also influencing uh, CO2 and the climate, because according to the uh, report of, of Nick, uh, the, uh, about 80% of the emissions are related to fossil fuel energy. And so you can try to show, uh, to make your case about climate, there is a link between the two and try to quantify it and quantify the actions you make. The second point is to have a more positive approach to CO2. CO2, as every chemist knows, is a very important component of chemical industry. For example, Mitsubishi is reusing all its uh, CO2 into products. So you can very well have a proactive approach, that is what Brongard is trying to do, uh, recycling CO2 instead of storing it. And that is also something that could uh, uh, be imaginative and something that could change the attitude, the psychology about uh, CO2 and climate. 
Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, very briefly, uh, I, I would agree that to reduce fossil subsidies must be a priority. Talking about Indonesia, they have actually gone through really huge effort to try to gradually uh, get less uh, fossil fuel subsidies. I, I respect that very much. Um, I'm not sure that the, the answer should be then to increase renewable subsidies as a general thing, because the thing what we have seen in recent years is that the costs have come down. So in the years after 2020, a lot of renewables uh, would actually be able to compete. Uh, and I think that's a very important thing to, to sort of stick to, that it's not so that it is either subsidized renewables or market-driven fossil fuels, just to, to be clear about that. And the other thing, I would basically agree that it's very much also about circular economy and, and making it imaginative, something that people want to be part of. And there, again, I think that it is unfortunate, to put it the least, that now we have a president in the White House who sort of just do not want to talk about climate change because I thought we had just sort of pushed the stone up the mountain a bit. And people started to understand that it's not necessarily a negative kind of society who gets serious about these things. It's about more innovative things, fancy things, things I want to be part of, more interesting and creative cities, all that. And that is what a leading politician in the world, he can maybe not destroy it, but he can sort of make it less likely that you get people on board that narrative fast enough. Thank you very much. I see a question here in the second row. Well, I had actually two questions. The, the, the first is maybe on the monitoring. Each time I'm trying to, sorry, I'm an independent consultant. But each time I'm trying to look at the PPM or the concentration of carbon, well, we, we get this data that comes from Hawaii and, and, and which are really monitored. When we are trying to, to see the, the assessment of melting, well, we're pretty much depending these days on, on NASA, actually, and the, the Operation Ice Bridge that monitors, uh, that scans, basically, the, the ice uh, conditions. Now, what are we doing, maybe in Europe, in China, in case these kinds of monitoring disappear? Do we, do we have some policies to, to, to be able to bridge this and to, to keep an actual picture on the situation? That's the first question. The second was more towards the, the Americans. I think the, the administration is quite fascinating. We have in, in this administration or in the, this White House both uh, Elon Musk, who is from Tesla and who is part of the consultancy, and, and we have uh, um, uh, T-Rex, basically, uh, doing uh, the, the state's government, the, the state's department. So uh, how influential do you think is still this White House towards all these debates which are quite complex. Do you think that there is still some margins? We saw the very interesting introduction of the very innovative pro uh, products from, from Tesla, for example, in batteries or solar roofs. Is there a margin, do you think, in the White House to, to open up to, towards these technologies? So first on the fake news, fake data then uh, issue. So how do we in Europe respond to the need of solid data? Uh, well, there, there, there I must admit, and maybe I believe, but I still think that America will, even under Trump, continue to be very much the United States of America, that it will still be a relatively transparent society. So there would be countries where I would be more concerned 
if they were sort of uh, backing here. I think we would still get the data that, that is, is needed. And, and then just finally, you know, where I am most concerned in, in the shorter term now, that is on aviation, on shipping, on the review of the international uh, agreement in 2018. I mean, within the next few years, there are some rather crucial areas where the world still needs to work together in getting shipping on board to deliver on the uh, thing that was adopted last uh, fall on, uh, on aviation and then to take stock of Paris in 2018. And there it could be really unpleasant and the credibility of the whole effort could risk being undermined if the United States new administration will not get its act together in a more positive way before we get there. Uh, yeah, well, very brief. I think it was, it was put uh, really nicely earlier on um, that, yes, of course, there is and will continue to be a lot of room for private sector initiative. Uh, there's, no, there's no question. Um, I think that the momentum of the, the, of the, the so the policy momentum of making, making something out of Paris and translating that ambition into a workable and, and realistic sort of policy framework for the long run, that process uh, seems to be disrupted, and I think that's the loss. Um, creates uncertainty, so it does affect the private sector, uh, but it's room to maneuver. Um, I, don't, I don't think necessarily it will be curtailed. Um, Christine? Yeah. Quickly, in terms of what is uh, possible in terms of... If you, if you can make a case to a coal miner in West Virginia why a policy is a good policy, that's going to be the most important thing in the next two years. Um, if there's a new Congress, we'll see how things play out. But right now, there's a lot of loyalty to the Trump base. And if there's an argument to be said about any technology that brings jobs to West Virginia, I think it's a good argument. If the argument takes away jobs from West Virginia, I really don't think it's going to have a uh, good chance of making it uh, a winning in the White House right now. All right, so I think it was a tremendous discussion, as the president would say. I would thank you, all of you, fantastic. for coming. A fantastic discussion, very big indeed. I and uh, I think that over the next four years, we will have plenty of things to discuss. So see you soon around the Bruegel, and all the best. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you.